Welcome to the Times Opinion podcast. We're going to be focusing on the aftermath of the Paris attacks with Alice Thompson, columnist for the Times, Roger Boyes, diplomatic editor of the Times, and John McTurnan, columnist for the Times, contributor to Red Box, all kinds of things, including being a former advisor to Tony Blair. I'm Philip Webster. I'm editor of the Red Box Bulletin and the Red Box website. Looking at the rows of victims in Paris, they all have glossy hair, white smiles and youth. It used to be the police, the establishment, businesses, tourists and commuters who were the most vulnerable to terrorism. This is the first time the Facebook generation has been targeted. On a Friday night when they're relaxing at cafes, concerts and matches. How will they respond? Our efforts to contain and degrade ISIS have failed. We're left with two rotten options. Either we accept that Putin now controls Syria's future and mount joint bombing campaigns with him using unpalatable Hezbollah and Iranians to do the dirty work, or we overcome our fear of using ground troops and confront ISIS face to face. Labour has to convince voters that they can be trusted with national security. In uncertain times, that becomes even more critical. Opposing shoot to kill, condemning French bombing and questioning the killing of Jihadi John puts Labour in precisely the opposite place to ordinary people. All this on top of a pacifist approach to the armed forces makes Labour utterly unelectable. Right, and we'll kick off with uh, Alice Thompson. Alice, you you raise a really interesting question there. There is this. This seems to be a different target for for ISIS this time. Whether it's a mistake, whether they intended the the main mayhem to have been caused at the Stade de France, we don't know. But what did happen was that an awful lot of very young people were killed in this in these attacks. How do, how do you think? that the young are going to respond. The bizarre thing about these attacks is is the slaughter of the young by the young. So the people who committed these attacks are also Mm. almost all under 30, the ones that have been caught, or the ones that died. So it is very much sort of youth on youth. And I think that the younger generation are more integrated than other generations. They are far more ethnically diverse and they are far more accepting, I think, of other cultures. And I think that's what's so difficult for them. So the 11th arrondissement, if you go there, is very multicultural and there Mm. were a lot of different people from different backgrounds. And I think the tax were deliberate, actually, on people on a Friday when, you know, they could have been at mosque, but actually they're in these bars, they're having a good time. They've just finished at school, at university, as interns, um, in their first jobs, really, a lot of them. And it was a direct attack on them and on youth. And, I mean, a lot of the children and um, people who go to football matches are the young it's a sort of very vibrant community there as well so you definitely felt that this was a change that they were really going for people not the establishment or sort of set pieces but for people who are out there who are just very very normal and roger what do you what do you think the motives are of, 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 of widening yeah. this uh, david cameron said that the 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 isis threat is evolving but this this apparent decision deliberately to target uh, younger people just out enjoying themselves on a Friday night. Where, where, what do you think that comes from? Well, as Alice said, Friday night is significant. I mean, it's the night you either get boozed if you're a Westerner or you go to the mosque if you're a devout mm. Muslim. So, And there is this constant disparity between what these frustrated young North uh, above all North African Muslims feel. That's to say, uh, you know, they attacked, for example, the concert hall because they're 
they're taught that music is somehow bad. Mm -hmm. They attack cafes because they don't like the idea of men mixing with women. And the way they operate, you know, they're communicating through WhatsApp, uh, encrypted WhatsApp functions, even PlayStation 4, you know, they, they're different ways now of communicating in a way that, they, that they're not watched. So there's this constant clash between modern Westernism and what they feel the Muslim world should represent. And that's not something that's going to go away. It's not something that we can solve by creating more jobs or making our society more porous for immigrant labor, for example. These, these are not solutions to something as deep-seated as this. So it's going to roll on, and it's going to roll on as long as rolling on seems successful in some way. This, I, I mean, what we saw in Paris wasn't really much different from what's been happening in, you know, Afghanistan cities, uh, towns, or in Khartoum, or in, in all sorts in of Baghdad. places in Baghdad, mm. Istanbul. I mean, these are places, you know, it, it, it's it's. It, the more you do it, the more you recruit. It's actually a recruitment device. Uh, it seems successful. You create chaos, you, you destabilize, you paralyze a, a modern society. So you're successful. You think of yourself as being some, and if you die, you, you're a martyr. There's really a no, it's a no-lose situation for these, these kids. So what to do? I'm not really quite sure. It's an attack on modernity, though, using the tools of modernity. So I think the age of the people who were killed isn't as important as the fact that the killers believed that they were attacking pagans and prostitutes. That is the value system through which they see people. They weren't looking for a particular cohort of Russians when they blew up the jet that flew up from Sharm el-Sheikh. It's not who the people were, it's what they were doing and how they were doing it. And the, the, the range of uh, people who want to go out and eat on a, on a Friday night or go to a concert or go to a football match is broad. And the one thing that connects them is that they are modern Europeans, modern Westerners, people like you and me, people like the people listening to this podcast. Uh, there's a paradox, which is that modernity allows people to move uh, from country to country. You can go and you can be a tourist in Sharm el-Sheikh, but you can also fly from the Middle East and get into to Paris to cause, or come from North Africa and cause an act of terrorism. And so when I'm, I'm less pessimistic than Roger, I think for every person that this radicalizes in the Muslim community uh, in the West, it produces five or ten times more informers and in the end disrupting these networks because they are networks, they're not lone individuals takes a lot of effort to I think that's uh, what I find interesting is that when you say there's nothing they can do, I think the young are beginning to be galvanised, so if you look at what's happening now on the web there are groups that are cyber groups that are now saying they're going to come out against ISIS and they're going to start attacking Mm. ISIS on the web and I think that's quite interesting because it's only the people really who are under 30. So the beginnings of a backlash. Yeah, who are yeah. going to understand really how to use all this sort of the Playstations for the things but like that and I think that's quite, that will be amazing if they if you start getting people online managing to fight back because it's very much an online battle as, as well yes. as being a battle that's on, you know, on land and I think the only people who are going to help on that are going to be the young in the end. Because Roger the, the, the aim seems to be to turn the indigenous population against the Muslim population so that that can act as a recruiting ground as well. Yes. Do, do you do you buy that as a as a theory? Well, it's uh, that's been around for a long time. Mm. You know, uh, the guerrilla groups of the seventies did it. It's called the strategy of tension. You basically aim to provoke 
the state into uh, into an overreaction, which then further alienates the. I mean, I, I had reports that people, when uh, during those explosions, there were Muslims in prisons, actually celebrating uh, celebrating what had happened. Mm. Alice knows a lot about Muslims in prison, but it's not just about modernity. There is, it is a punitive doctrine um, that they have. I mean, they're, they're basically punishing the civilian populations of countries that are at war with them. So France is, is quite an effective participant in the campaign against the Islamic State. And, and Russia has just stepped up its activities. That's why the airliner was actually shot down. Yes. Uh, so there is a specific political function that has obviously been ordained from Raqqa, you know, from, uh, from the headquarters of the Islamic State. There's obviously also um, a political wish that electorates will somehow turn against governments and say, well, we don't want to, you know, our children are dying, we don't want to be involved in this war, it's nothing to do with us. And th this is the effect, and this is the model, I think, that they take, the, the, the effect of the bombings in Spain in 2004, when um, there was, um, which was, a, a, again, a kind of, it was Al-Qaeda, but it was still a multiple attack. This was followed by a general election, a change of government, which then withdrew Spain from the Iraqi war. And they may be thinking that the, a similar kind of mechanical process, political mm. mechanical process, is going to happen. Which is why I presume, John, it's, it's a good thing that this, this football match is going, going ahead at Wembley tonight, because that must be the the kind of defiance that they didn't want to uh, I think instill. That, I, I think that's right, and I think they're... There is in every city which, is, which has had one of these attacks, there's a fear that life as normal will stop. And yet, life as normal in Baghdad goes on, life as normal in Mumbai goes on, life as normal in Paris goes on, life as normal in London goes on. And we, we do have um, a history in London of continuing to work and to play and to live uh, in the middle of terrorist bombing campaigns and attacks. We haven't had such a focus on, on taking civilian life since the bombs on, on the tube, uh, but it's an awareness people, people have. But one thing I was wondering about is, should we be accepting the terms in which IS want us to consider French or British populations or European populations, which is, it's right that there are disaffected North African youths in, or youths of North African descent in, in Paris, but when we call them Muslims, we accept the IS definition that the faith is more important than the nationality or mm. the origin. And that one of the terrible slippages in Britain, I think, has been that we stopped talking about black and minority ethnic um, Britons and we classify some of them as Muslims. That's a way that people who believe in a caliphate think of the world. But actually, the behavior of some of many of the, of the young North Africans, lower middle class, working class, middle class, uh, in Paris uh, and, and in France more broadly, is completely opposite to what IS want, which goes back to Alice's point, mm. I think, that it's a lifestyle of younger people, of a more diverse, more tolerant younger generations being assaulted in this because it symbolises absolutely the opposite of what IS want. Alice, last word for you on this bit. Uh, I sensed you were a little bit more optimistic about the future than maybe Roger. 
I think in I'm, the sense of the reaction this will this will bring from younger people. I think it's because it's brought them in, and I don't think they've been politicised like this before. Actually, I don't. I think um, having four children, I can see they're far more obsessed by this than they've been by anything else. Mm. Because they're on Facebook and they're looking at it and they've changed their Facebook pages to red, white and blue. And, and it's really affected them and they're there and they've got their phones and they've got their tablets and they know exactly what's going on now. So that very much feels part of their world suddenly, which I don't think it did, even with Just Sweet Charlie. They felt that was an older generation mm, and the cartoonists yeah. were older somehow. And it was what we were talking about of the 70s. It wasn't their issue or even almost their war. Whereas now... I think the PlayStation as well was an extraordinary thing. And, mm. and I think they understand about encryption and they understand. I mean, you just look at Talk Talk and the age of the boy who managed to get in there. You need to get younger children who are really good at this kind of thing and you need to get them fighting back online, I think. Yeah. OK, uh, Roger Boys, we'll go on to your second item here. You've given us two unpalatable options. I imagine you'll say that the first is more likely to, um, to happen. Yes, but it's not the one I want. That's to say, I mean, the, the problem, I don't know if it's the problem. Yes, it, I suppose it is the problem that Putin has inserted himself into this war. No, there are two problems. One is that Putin has inserted himself into the war, and the second yep. is that we're not succeeding, and our whole idea of containing ISIS has collapsed, really. We, we can't, whatever we're doing is somehow wrong. Uh, but Putin's not going to make it any better. Uh, and therefore, we shouldn't really use him as an ally. He's seeking to upgrade his status, uh, get some kind of international rehabilitation after Ukraine, and he's trying a little bit too hard. Did, did you, just to interrupt, did you think, though, that Obama and Cameron were both offering him a little bit of rehabilitation Yes, yesterday. I think, that, I think we're move, we seem to be moving, moving in that direction. I, I think that we have to accept some kind of level of coexistence in the, in this war as it is but uh, and we but we also have to accept that we're going to clash with Russia on on different things mm. and not think that the world is going to collapse just because we uh, challenge Russia on on different things so something will come out of that but i i still do think that part of the problem has been obama's absolute reluctance to get to get down and and dirty in the in this in this conflict the whole two terms of withdrawal uh, from war and from redefining war in, uh, has led, really, uh, uh, amongst other things, to the disintegration of the of the Middle East. So, put, does putting ground forces change improve that? Well, maybe it does. It's certainly the thing that we've been avoiding for all these years, and have therefore tied ourselves into knots about. But it doesn't just want to just. Just saying ground forces is some, some kind of fetishistic thing now, you know, like a Macbeth curse or something. But it doesn't have to be 100,000 troops every time. But it has to be a lot more than the 50 special forces men that, that, that Obama has put in. So the thinking is maybe 10, 15,000 more intensive bombing. To do, the, to do this actually as a proper military operation. And those 10, 15,000, of course, have to be together with Iraqi soldiers in Iraq and with uh, Syrian rebel forces and Kurds in in Syria. And I know all the problems there. <laughs> uh, and they know all the problems there. But we have to be there. That's all I'm saying. There, there has to be now a, a ground presence. Otherwise, uh, ISIS will just continue to grab territory and uh, yeah. and uh, expand its reach uh, well beyond well beyond the Middle East. John, you, you worked for Tony Blair for a number of years. Oh. I mean, been gone a long time, but I imagine he would have taken a very different 
view to all of this? I mean, Tony himself has pointed out that we've, we've actually tried non-intervention, and that's why we're where we are in Syria. The House of Commons decided quite shamefully not to try and prevent uh, Assad barrel bombing his own civilians. And then MPs, for whatever reason, were proud of the fact that they'd chosen not to act. Mm. But we've also tried regime change by force with no boots on the ground. And we created Libya, which is the single main source of refugees coming in Mm. boats across the Mediterranean. So we know that fails. We're pretty well versed in what are bad options. The question is what is the outcome that we want? And I think it's pretty clear that after the Paris attacks, uh, our ambition is and must be to crush and destroy ISIS in the way that we crushed and destroyed uh, eventually Al-Qaeda. Now, I agree with Roger too. There is a fetishization of saying we won't have boots on the ground. Obviously, we do have boots on the ground because somebody has to service um, RAF jets. They don't fly on their own. They don't have people, you know, people are not in hover boots and never touch the ground. We do have to decide how do you beat a military enemy? And the answer is if your proxy is the Iraqi army, that realistically is not going to defeat IS. So if you want to defeat them, you have to put our troops there. And as Roger said as well, our other proxies... Some of them are good people to work with, like the Kurds. Others are not necessarily allies we choose, but I'm not sure we choose uh, to have the relationship with Russia that we're, we have to have over Syria at the moment. What is the end point? And the end point has to be the destruction of IS. And we know, we know the kind of things that we can do. I think people fear more than boots on the ground. They fear the long haul. I think a lot, mm. of, a lot of, of, of what's happening is politicians fearing the long-term deployment of troops. But we know how long it took in Northern Ireland not just to have troops on the ground, but to infiltrate the IRA right up to the very top of their of, of their command structure. And that infiltration and intelligence war is as important uh, as the ground war. It takes patience. It takes incredible patience to infiltrate and to destroy from inside. But that's what we have to do with IS. And in that sense, the communities in Britain, France, Germany, and Western Europe, who want to help the intelligence forces, are not just a potential recruiting ground for IS, they're a potential recruiting ground for security forces in Europe. And someone said on the radio, in one of the many commentaries has been on the Paris attacks, terrorism is multinational, our response needs to be multinationals. But Alice, the, uh, listening to John there, the, David Cameron will not even risk putting a vote on airstrikes before the House of Commons at the moment because he fears defeat and defeat would damage Britain's international standing. So is there really any any chance that uh, he would get approval for putting any kind of force on the ground at any time, do you think? I think opinions are just slowly beginning to change, actually. I thought one of the most interesting was Robert Harris. I don't know if you saw, but he tweeted yeah. after the mm. Paris atrocities. Now, he was one of the most vocal opponents mm. of Tony Blair. He even wrote yeah. the book, The Ghost, about, mm. about what happened. And, and if you think about it, he really was Tony Blair's nemesis. He just couldn't bear the fact that he'd gone into rock. And he led a, a very yeah. vocal opposition to that. And I think that was very much what other people's view was that there was a very much a sense that Britain should never have gone into Iraq and then we had Afghanistan and a sense that we couldn't do anything whereas now I think he's he then tweeted yes. you know we need boots on the ground pretty much and you thought maybe there is a groundswell and 
David Cameron can do something if he has a groundswell. If he doesn't have the public opinion with him, he's never going to do anything. If the MPs also sense that the public are beginning to think we need to do something about this, they will do something. They're just worried that their constituents don't want any sort of war scenario. They don't want any boots on the ground scenario. Mm, be interesting to have so, a, a poll. Would be interesting. Mm, yeah. He doesn't actually need parliamentary approval to put boots on the ground in Iraq. I mean, we're there at the invitation of the Iraqi mm-hmm. government. So it all just boils down to whether you lose votes by doing that. And that's partly an emotional thing. If you did it this week, maybe you wouldn't lose votes. But it's partly addressing the question properly. And also answering John's point about the long term. It's it's very irritating when parliamentarians say there's no exit strategy. Well, yeah, you know, of course there's no exit strategy. But the truth is you have to do a balance between inaction and action. Uh, and I think Cameron has to make that point more do, coherently. And, and, I mean, and, not doing the difference between not doing anything and the difference between doing something. And do, do, you, uh, do you spot anything changing on, the, on this question of Assad's future, which is obviously the big dividing line between uh, Putin and and the West at the moment. Yes, I mean, it's just, I think some kind of decision has been made that it shouldn't be a dividing line right. for now. Yeah, On both sides? Um, uh, yes, I think so. Uh, I mean, but we know that the Russians are lying in almost every <laughs> on every uh, you know stage of the process when we're talking about Assad. Uh, so when we say, well, okay, you know, uh, maybe we could leave him in power for another 12 months while we get the business sorted, and he says, no, 18 months, it sounds like there's a deal that could be done. But the truth is, when he says 18 months, he, he means, means that years. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, he means another 18 years. Yeah. He means after 18 months, we're either going to put in an Assad clone or, you know, um, inject him with sheep cells from a Swiss clinic, which makes sure <laughs> that he lives forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Right. Well, let's move on to the uh, third item. John, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was uh, elected by a lot of young people. Mm. And uh, as we were saying earlier, the young people have been the subject of, of, of this attack. I mean, or are the remarks he's been making in recent days, surely they are going to change opinion among some of the people who voted for him. I think people voted for him knowing what they were going to get, which is a man who has instinctively is opposed to the West and supports people who oppose the West in any conflict. So his inclination is on, on the side uh, not of the forces, our forces, uh, or French forces. Uh, that came out quite clearly. He thought that French bombing made made matters worse uh, in Syria, which I think will have been very much at odds with any young people who um, put a trickler onto their Facebook page uh, or who felt a, a, a pang of connect, a pang of sorrow mm. and a connection with the people who, who died. The difficulty for Corbyn and the Labour Party as a whole is that. Attacks like the Paris attacks and discussing the consequences means that questions are asked of him quite directly, to which he gives quite direct and honest answers. And his answers are, he thinks that a man like Jihadi John should have been arrested and brought Mm. to trial. Now, it's very unlikely the Metropolitan Police would have flown into a war zone to arrest him, but it's actually a kind of way of masking inaction. It's, it's, It's double talk in the same way Putin's talk about Assad is double talk. That maybe doesn't come across so strongly. When you condemn uh, 
French bombing is unhelpful, that kind of gets you somewhere else. And when it becomes clear that you don't even think that police should, uh, mm. or special forces should, should shoot to kill in when there's an active terrorist attack going on, you pretty well clearly answer a whole set of questions about what your posture is about the use of security forces and the use of uh, military forces and where you stand. And it is a perfectly legitimate position for a pacifist to say that terrorists have human rights too. It's not a position that anybody who wishes to be Prime Minister of Great Britain should ever think, uh, let alone say. And Alice, you, 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 you think that the young people that we've been talking about earlier, you, you'd think that some of them would be saying, I didn't vote for this guy. For him to um, well, I think actually to say that we shouldn't we shouldn't be defended if um, if the if these guys yeah. come in shooting at us in I a tube station. John's distinction was very good about the people who voted. So the people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn probably did know. Do you think much. so? I mean, there were a lot of people who uh, voted for him. I, well, I just I wonder. Quite a lot of them would have known his past. I think the people who actually warmed to him in the country, which was quite a yes. lot of people, so mm. a lot of the young and the elderly, fund, they, those were the two big groups that warmed him. Thought he was a nostalgic, avuncular looking. Yeah, they just thought he was a normal, nice guy mm. who did. You know, who just acted in a different way from everyone else at Westminster and wasn't part of the whole establishment. And that's why they liked him. And actually, I don't think they really picked apart the pacifist side of him. And I think that's been a real shock to some of them. And I think it will be a shock to a lot of the young mm. who just vaguely thought, oh, this is something funny and entertaining and interesting. And now it's not so funny anymore. And it's not... I thought the shoot to kill, particularly, when you unpick it and try to unravel it, just doesn't work and stack up on any level. And Hilary Benn was trying to explain on the radio quite what Labour's policy on shoot to kill is and it's very difficult if you see the atrocities in France not to think <laughs> his well, policy I think was somewhat different from his leaders I mean Roger what, what, are, what are opposition parties elsewhere think of um, the current leader of the Labour um, of Her Majesty's opposition in Britain well social democrats in power think he's an absolute liability, for example, the German Social Democrats. Uh, but frankly, I'm not a great admirer of the German Social Democrats, so I, I, I'm not so sure that's a great measure. I think Hollande thinks he's a waste of time. Uh, me, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing a meeting sometime between uh, Marine Le Pen and Corbyn and see what... See how of, they get on. Yeah, see how yeah. they get on, because actually some of their positions are very close. I, I mean, I think people voted for Corbyn simply because they didn't know very much about him, and, and now they must begin slowly must slowly dawn on them that he's that they've basically voted for George Galloway you know um, in, or, or Tarek Ali or something. Well, it comes, and it comes to something nothing to do with the Labour Party. It comes to something when, when it turns out that attacking uh, the chief of the, of the defence staff was the high point of your policy uh, mm. in relationship yes. to armed forces and security that now looks like a minor blip compared to the shoot to kill thing it's like there's been, te there's been you know, almost a fortnight in which uh, Corbyn has defined himself absolutely opposite to where the British public are and where mainstream opinion is and where I think the kind of young people who found this interesting or different or as um, uh, Alice said, you know, found it maybe a bit funny, a bit disruptive. Actually, uh, people who have known Corbyn for a long time know that he's not changed his views since the 70s. Um, it's actually very old-fashioned po old politics. It's not, it's not this, is, this is a return to politics that used to be there when yeah, I started. It was almost as if when the BBC put shoot to kill to him mm. in that interview, he went, shoot to kill. Mm. We're against that, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. You right. know, It was almost as he was referring right. to the yeah. Stop the War um, yeah. 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 No, his brain. Uh, I bet his brain went back to the IRA, you know. Yeah. Uh, and he, Gibraltar. His, his, yes, and his reference point would have been, you know, the SAS shooting in Gibraltar. 
There's there's nothing in between because his, his, I mean <laughs> well, nothing, no, because nothing, nothing has happened. The world is, no exactly. It's there's as if no the world hasn't changed. changed. There's, yeah. there's been no learning, no development, yeah. nothing. Uh, conversely, that actually David Cameron does quite well in these sort of situations. So he's not always seen as a visionary, always having any um, sort agree. of long-term legacy of his own. But actually, when it comes to this sort of thing, he is actually quite good at those set pieces, and it'll be even easier for him now without yeah. Jeremy Corbyn. He can rise to the big can, occasion. Yeah, he I think, can rise to it, and I think mm. he. Yeah enjoys yeah. it and you can see he likes steadying the ship and he knows what he's doing whereas actually when he's having to formulate long-term policy about the NHS... I was going to say this is why he wanted to be Prime Minister to do mm. these kind of the things rather than, yeah. rather than fiddle yes. around with... What he doesn't you know. like is should we have a food tax or yeah. you know the, the sort yeah. of day-to-day things that we yeah. find slightly banal. I do, think, yeah. I do think it would be interesting though if we got Sir Nick Harriton back onto the Mar show and he was asked what he thought about boots on the ground. I think the view of the armed forces about boots on the ground is probably very different from that of um, the Prime Minister because uh, the view of the, the chiefs uh, is quite often uh, strategically and tactically at odds with what the Prime Minister mm. says. And he, he, he is similar to Corbyn in that he actually will not listen to advice from the military that he doesn't like. I got a c- couple of calls during or after the PLP from people telling me that that Corbyn had been treated with contempt during the meeting. It, it does make... I, I know everyone says that he, he has to be there for quite some time, but it, I must say it made me wonder. I think it's the, spe- it's the speed with which things get worse. And I'm a deep pessimist about Corbyn's leadership, so I'm never surprised about how bad he goes. But people do always think it's, it's, it's stabilised. Uh, because at least he sent flowers to, to the French embassy, or at least um, at least he wore a red poppy to the Armistice Day. You know, at least he, at, at least, at least, it's always, it's basically a form of at least his trousers didn't fall down. Mm. And last night in the PLP, it sounded like his trousers did actually fall down, mm. uh, or he was debagged by the PLP. Well, on that note, Jeremy Corbyn's trousers falling down. We'll end it. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Thanks to my guests, Alice Thompson, Roger Boys, and John McTurnan. Visit thetimes.co.uk for further reading. Please join up to Redbox, thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox forward slash sign up forward slash. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.